I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about how the courts are coping with the coronavirus. So I hope everyone is staying home when possible and staying safe. And please uh, bear with us in this episode. Tiffany and I are recording uh, both of us from home, and so uh, we hope that this goes well. Uh, But we wanted to talk briefly about how courts across the country are responding in different ways to the current uh, coronavirus pandemic. So as of this recording, uh, some courts are proceeding with oral arguments. The New York-based Second Circuit, for example, is going to hear uh, oral arguments and live stream them, but limit the number of staff and other people allowed into the courtroom. The Seventh Circuit, which is based in Chicago, is going to hear arguments by phone. Uh, Several courts, the First, Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Circuits, for example, have canceled or postponed upcoming arguments. Uh, The D.C. Circuit here in Washington announced that it's going to let each of the three judge panels decide whether to proceed with upcoming arguments either by phone or to postpone them or to simply decide the cases uh, based on the briefs and so without hearing oral argument. It's not clear what the D.C. Circuit plans to do with a couple of en banc arguments. Um, It had scheduled to rehear with the full court uh, two cases at the end of April, one brought by House Democrats who are trying to subpoena the testimony of former White House counsel Don McGahn, and another involving a challenge to funding for the Southern uh, Border Wall Project. So we'll see what happens with those. Uh, The Ninth Circuit over on the West Coast uh, originally had moved some of its arguments from higher risk cities, including Seattle, to uh, some of its other courthouses, such as in Pasadena, California. But it's now decided to postpone those arguments as well. And one of the upcoming arguments that has been postponed is a copyright suit brought by the estate of beloved children's author Dr. Seuss against uh, authors of a comic book called Oh, the Places You'll Boldly Go. It's apparently a mashup of Dr. Seuss and Star Trek. So we'll keep an eye on uh, what, what's happening with those those cases. <laughs> the D.C. Superior Court uh, shut down uh, this week after um, one of the marshals tested positive for coronavirus, and it's it's only going to hear cases that are deemed absolutely essential. Uh, other courts are continuing ongoing criminal trials, but delaying the start of any new non-emergency matters for the time being. And many courthouses remain open across the country, but they're strongly discouraging visitors uh, and non-essential staff from coming in until the pandemic passes. And most importantly, for purposes of this podcast, the Supreme Court has announced that it is postponing oral arguments from the March sitting. So that's March 23rd through April 1st. The justices were supposed to hear arguments in a bunch of really important cases, including Our Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey Beru, which is Beckett's case involving the ministerial exception that protects religious organizations' ability to make employment decisions regarding their ministers without government interference. They were also supposed to hear Google versus Oracle, which is probably one of the most important copyright cases um, in a long time, maybe ever. And as a disclosure, I filed an amicus brief in that case. Um, And the court was also supposed to hear a set of challenges 
cases challenging state grand jury and congressional attempts to subpoena President Donald Trump's financial record. Um, and as another disclosure, my firm represents the president in those cases. So I think this was the right call. You know, the majority of justices are uh, 65 or older, putting them at a higher risk for serious illness if they contract coronavirus. Uh, four-time cancer survivor Ruth Bader Ginsburg turned 87 less than a week ago. Um, Stephen Breyer's 81. Clarence Thomas is 71. And then Roberts, Sotomayor, and Alito are all in their mid to late 60s. Uh, so Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh are the only, uh, you know, sort of younger ones on the court, age 60 or younger. And oral arguments are open to the public and observers, reporters, court staff, lawyers, the justices, they're all packed into the courtroom. And even though the the courtroom has, you know, so, a soaring ceiling, it's a it's a beautiful space, uh, the public seating is is rather cramped. I think it it fits about 400 people in the courtroom. And the justices bench, for example, is only three and a half feet away from the lectern where the lawyers stand to present their arguments. So it's pretty close quarters for people. Uh, so I think the court made the right call in postponing the upcoming March arguments, not only to safeguard the the justice's health, but you know the health of all the other people who would have been present in the courtroom. And I know that some advocacy groups, such as Fix the Court and others that have uh, long pushed for technology reforms, have suggested this was the, the perfect moment for the court to adopt many of their suggestions, such as live streaming arguments. Uh, but it does not appear that the court uh, is is entertaining uh, those reforms, uh, at least at this time. That's definitely true. Um, and when the court announced that arguments were postponed, it didn't indicate when those cases would be rescheduled. So the next sitting is April 20th through 29th. And th theoretically, the court could add those cases um, from the March sitting. Since there are three days in the April sitting with only one case uh, each day uh, set for argument. And typically the court hears two cases per day, one at 10 a.m. and one at 11 a.m. So they could um, slip those cases into the 11 a.m. slot on those days. The court could also add afternoon sessions to the remaining days starting at 1 p.m., which it occasionally does during normal times um, every year. And alternatively, the court could add an extra week or two of arguments, extending argument sessions into early May. Um, if the court needs to cut the April hearing too, however, that would push things back even further. So whatever the court decides to do, the justices are still going to have quite a few opinions um, and some big ones, including tackling gun rights, abortion, Obamacare, and immigration. Uh, and they'll They'll aim to finish those in May and June in order to stay on track to finish uh, the term at the end of June. Um, but that is a self-imposed deadline. And so the court could extend its term by a few weeks to give the justices more time to write their opinions. Um, because technically, I believe the term doesn't legally end until the next term begins. It just by custom um, typically ends at the end of June. Uh, and given the high volume of these blockbuster cases, the justices would probably appreciate a few weeks, um, extra weeks to work on their opinions. And yeah, as Elizabeth said, in the end, I think postponing the March arguments was the right thing to do. Um, and it's probably going to lead to a slightly later conclusion to 
the 2019 term. Um, but it's not likely going to have a huge impact on the court's work. They're still working. Um, but obviously that's in flux depending on how long things go on. I wanted to provide a little bit of historical context here because the the court is pretty well known for soldiering on with its arguments, notwithstanding whatever else is happening in the outside world. Uh, so the fact that they have postponed the, the March arguments is a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, during blizzards and hurricanes, when other federal buildings in Washington have been shuttered, the court has proceeded with arguments. In fact, when D.C. was hit with 21 inches of snow in 1996, then Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who was a Wisconsin native, refused to cancel oral arguments. And instead, he sent jeeps to pick up the justices from their homes and bring them to the court. I think that's probably a reflection of the fact that uh, he was a Midwesterner. And so, you know, a few feet of snow was <laughs> just a light dusting, in his opinion. Uh, there was also an anthrax scare in the court's mailroom um, after 9-11, and the justices just relocated to uh, the federal building that houses uh, some other some other courts in D.C. to hear oral arguments there. Um, the court also continued to hear or oral arguments during government shutdowns in 2013 and uh, 20, 2019. Um, however, the court has abbreviated sitting, sittings before uh, in, in the court's order announcing that it would be postponing the March session. It, it mentioned that in August 1793 and August 1798, the court had to cut its uh, argument sitting short due to a yellow fever outbreak. And then, of course, a lot of people have mentioned the fact that the court pushed back uh, its arguments by about a month during the height of the Spanish influenza in the fall of 1918. But as I mentioned before, the justices are still continuing to work and they will meet this Friday in a private conference. The court has indicated that some of them will probably participate by phone instead of in person. And the court will likely continue to release orders and opinions in cases as they are decided. And they don't need to be physically present at uh, one first rate for that to occur. Um, so we wish them well in continuing to work. And we also wish friend of the podcast, David Latwell. Um, he has been chronicling his coping with the coronavirus on Twitter. He was hospitalized last week. And we hope that he and everyone who else who has come down with the virus um, pulls through this quickly. And you can follow along with his updates at hashtag LatsCOVID19 Journal. So next up, I recently spoke with Benjamin Beaton of the Sixth Circuit Appellate Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start out with the blog. You and your colleagues highlight recent opinions and the activities of Sixth Circuit judges. So tell me about the blog and following the Learned Sixth. Well, one of the many advantages of helping to run a D.C.-style appellate group uh, that's based outside D.C. is the ability to get to know a court, a really important court, really well, like the Sixth Circuit. Uh, it's an, um, uh, a really remarkable uh, court for different reasons. One, it's pure scope from Canada to the Mississippi Delta. Uh, it's got tons of intellectual diversity, experiential diversity, um, a lot of great judges, young and older. Uh, and so we have a great time covering big issues like cases on bonk and cert review, 
also a lot of the lower wattage cases that are important to civil litigants but maybe never would make the headlines. And we also, uh, as you mentioned, with the Learned Sixth, uh, try to cover some fun stuff too, like say a great podcast interview uh, when the Sixth Circuit judge comes on a show like this, uh, articles and speeches that uh, the judges are doing outside the courtroom. Folks really uh, take an interest in that stuff. And I believe the the court, the judges, the law clerks, the staff uh, take an interest in it too. Um, it seems that they really appreciate the sort of care and attention that someone would give the work uh, that they are working so hard on uh, every day that, like I said, doesn't normally hit, you know, your regular press. So uh, it's a lot of fun to focus on advocacy before our, you know, quote unquote, home court in a way that's uh, differentiated, even though, you know, while we're focused on the Sixth Circuit, we're also handling cases in state Supreme Courts and Courts of Appeal and occasionally at the Supreme Court, too, as part of a national practice. So speaking of Sixth Circuit judges, you've co-authored a law review article with a friend of the podcast, Judge Amul Thapar. So how did you get to know him? Well, like any proper uh, Kentucky friendship, we met at a U.K. basketball game (laughs) at Rupp Arena uh, years ago when he was still a hard-charging AUSA and I was a snot-nosed pre-law student um, uh, preparing to to go off to to law school. Uh, And we just sort of um, struck up a friendship, a mentorship, a relationship there. And uh, as he would admit, I believe he's one of the most committed and enthusiastic mentors I've ever (laughs) come across. So he was just a constant resource uh, when it came to clerkships, firms. Ultimately, when we decided to uh, leave D.C. and move back home, um, he he was a a great friend and, and mentor, you know, I always use this as an example to remind younger uh, law students, young lawyers to not be bashful. You know, generally people love to give advice about what we know and do every day. So, uh, you know, you mentioned the article we did, which was a really fun piece about textualism responding to a book that Judge Posner had written on pragmatism. And we had a lot of fun with it because we took rather than a a real academic approach, a pragmatic approach to how textualism (laughs) works in the trenches, so to speak, uh, for, you know, the workaday business of judges, lawyers, and and real people affected by the decisions we all work on. So turning to your clerkships, uh, you first clerked for Judge Ray Randolph on the D.C. Circuit. So tell me about that experience. Well, Judge Randolph is a remarkable judge um, for any number of reasons. Uh, You can mention his sit-up record that stood at DOJ for decades, as I understood, uh, understand it. His work with Judge Bork at DOJ uh, on those hearings, his golf game, his painting ability. He's really a renaissance man. But probably the most important factor for me, uh, first coming to D.C. out of law school, was this chance to work with someone who had practiced at the height of the appellate bar in the United States, really, from the moment he graduated law school went to work uh, for Judge Friendly. And I always took a little bit of unmerited pride in my connection through Judge Randolph to this great tradition of American lawyering and judging, going back to Judge Friendly, the other many distinguished clerks along with Judge Randolph and his clerk tree, uh, and even you know back before Judge Friendly to folks like Justice Frankfurter, Brandeis, Elihu Root. So it was a really important informative experience for someone coming to D.C. without a 
ton of connections. Um, Judge Randolph, shall we say, set the bar extremely high uh, for how hard you had to work, how good your work product had to be to succeed at that level. So he held a sit-up record at DOJ. Was this anything that the the clerks would sometimes engage in (laughs) in chambers? Definitely not my year. (laughs) We were not going to challenge him or each other in those pursuits. So then you went on to clerk for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, So what were some of the highlights of that clerkship? Sure. Uh, Well, it's hard to find uh, much new to say about someone who is uh, so famous. Um, But uh, I guess I'll I'll give it a try. You know, when I was there, she was not yet the notorious RBG, (laughs) uh, but still a towering figure. And a great person to work for, no doubt about that. So one aspect of the clerkship that uh, we felt um, by its absence, our term, was the recent loss of her beloved husband, Marty Ginsburg, uh, this famous raconteur and uh, world-class tax lawyer. I knew about him first through Judge Randolph and his wife, Lee O'Connor, who were good friends from their days together on the D.C. Circuit and the elite tax law world. And uh, when I got my my interview, I guess, with uh, – or when I got my offer to clerk for uh, Justice Ginsburg, Judge Randolph pointed me to Marty's uh, leading M&A tax treatise. And he insists, before you go work with Ruth, you've got to read about Marty, even though he's <laughs> no longer with us. You will laugh out loud uh, at this tax treatise, which just seems – you know, an impossibility. Those yeah. <laughs> words don't even make sense. But I challenge anyone, uh, if you can find the tax treatise, uh, open it up, and it is laugh, laugh out loud funny about his um, um, use of golf uh, in, his, in a, just a wild uh, and distinguished career in tax law of all things. Now, you're not the typical Ginsburg clerk, a bit of a unicorn. You, you're active in the Federalist Society. You worked for a Republican member of Congress before law school. So how did you end up clerking for the notorious RBG? Sure, that well-worn path from Randolph to Ginsburg, right? Uh, it's a bit of an unusual, unusual story. I was uh, recommended by Henry Monahan and some others at Columbia, who she knew from her um, law professor days, and... I get a uh, a call after completing my sole all-nighter of my Randolph clerkship, uh, tail end of the term, and uh, the phone rings right when I prepare to search to the end of the internet, um, and it is Justice Ginsburg's uh, secretary on the line who asks three pretty simple questions. Um, first, are you interested in clerking on the Supreme Court? Yes. Uh, Are you interested in interviewing with Justice Ginsburg? Yes. Well, how about 3 (laughs) p.m.? Pregnant pause. 3 p.m. today? Well, yes. You're right down the street at the D.C. Circuit, right? Well, sure, sure. Uh, I'll be right there. So we had uh, an interesting interview in which, thankfully, I had been instructed about the three Mississippi rule which is when talking to Justice Ginsburg, you never assume she's ready for you to speak (laughs) until you can count in your head to three Mississippi. We discussed originalism of all things uh, during the interview. Maybe I wasn't, uh, you know, picking um, the right topics that day, but it all worked out. She called me the next day and said, Ben, I've got bad news and good news. The bad news is I talked to Nino and I had 
disclosed to her that I had interviewed with him recently as well. She said, and Justice Scalia's chambers is all full for this coming term. But the good news, or at least I hope it's the good news, is that we'd love to have you in our chambers. So, of course, I expressed my gratitude and, and excitement. We spoke for a moment, and she wrapped up in a very gracious way by saying, you know, I think you're going to have a great year together uh, with us here. The clerks are great. The work is great. And I think you and I will perhaps cause each other to think just a little bit harder about some of the cases <laughs> that come before the court. Oh, that's great. So now shifting gears a bit, um, I read that you also spent some time in Uganda working at, as a legal fellow for the International Justice Mission. So tell me about how you ended up there. Sure. Well, it's thanks to my lovely wife, Andrea, that we found ourselves looking for work in Uganda after uh, my first clerkship. And she was going over uh, to perform some rheumatic heart disease research. And we spent a lot of time in the country as a result of that. So I needed a job. And fortunately, some friends connected me with the International Justice Mission, which is a fantastic Christian legal NGO focused on the rule of law. And the premise is is basically this. Many countries around the world have laws on the books that more or less uh, are the right ones uh, on human rights issues like violence uh, and um, property rights. Uh, And the problem is not so much the law on the books, but uh, the breakdown in the public justice system. You have courts, prosecutors, lawyers who just don't have the experience the customs, the habits of uh, litigating cases and deciding cases the right way. So uh, IJM's mission is to identify uh, issues where that sort of experience, that know-how could make a difference, not just in, in an individual case, but by instilling rule of law values that will protect others as well. So in Uganda, the focus was on succession-related property grabbing. The typical case would be uh, a woman's husband dies, say, of AIDS in the prime of life. She has a garden and children to raise, but then under old family customs, maybe her husband's uh, brothers, uh, male relatives would come and try to forcibly remove her from the property, which if you're a subsistence farmer is you know, your only lease on life really. So we would uh, work with Uganda lawyers who also worked with IJM supporting them to represent these widows and orphans. It's, the mission is quite literally taken from the Bible uh, to protect them through uh, legal actions, which ideally and in, in many great cases will not just protect the, uh, the victim in a, in a given case but also help the public justice system be a tool to better protect people um, on an everyday basis even when IJM can't be involved. What fascinating work and just such a great cause to be involved in. Uh, well, shifting gears again, you're a fellow Kentuckian, so I have to ask, what's your favorite bourbon? Well, it's a tough question. Uh, as someone who represents the uh, Wine and Spirits Wholesalers, I'm tempted to say they're all my favorites. <laughs> uh, I love my children equally. But if I had to choose, I will go with a sort of a sentimental pick, which would be Booker's. A, an associate uh, who worked with me a lot at Sidley, who had really laid it on the line, was leaving for a D.C. Circuit clerkship, and we had helped a bit with that. And on his last day, he left uh, in my office this great bottle of Booker's bourbon just to say thanks. Uh, and, boy, I really felt that it was me who should be thanking him for all the 
hours that he had uh, he had invested on our behalf. Uh, so I was so impressed with his sense of gratitude in leaving that behind. He knew it was close to our uh, hearts, close to our Kentucky roots. So that that bottle of Booker's sort of became the goodbye toast source uh, in the office and, and, and continues to be a tradition uh, to this day. So I would go with Booker's for those reasons, plus the fact it's pretty delicious. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, Bullet is the unofficial bourbon of SCOTUS 101. Not a bad choice either. So one final question, something I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick? And what would you talk about? Well, Judge Thapar took my real answer, which would be my fellow Center College graduate, John Marshall Harlan I, fellow Kentuckian, great, great jurist. So I will go uh, – I will reach for a, for a deep track and say <laughs> Bushrod Washington, who had a pretty remarkable career on and off the bench. You know, greatest hits would be – you know, one, his uncle was George Washington. <laughs> Two, he inherited Mount Vernon. Three, his name is Bushrod, race ipsilocator. He has a bold-faced Conlaw precedent to his name in, in the Corfield Privileges and Immunities case. You know, a bit of a problematic history with slavery, perhaps. We could discuss that. Um, he, had a, he had a fabulous relationship or a fascinating relationship with John Marshall uh, with mm-hmm. whom he worked not just on the court but also to put together Marshall's biography of George Washington. So I'd love to have, uh, have lunch with uh, Justice Bushrod and what would we discuss? Perhaps we'd play a little um, SCOTUS trivia uh, of our own. I'd love to, uh, to, to play originalist uh, trivia with him looking back after <laughs> 200 years to say, OK, you know, which of these things would you predict would actually be the law of the, of the land today? You know, paper money. The CFPB, the administrative <laughs> state, uh, I think that would be fascinating to see through his eyes the concepts that we work with today. That would be a fun game. And speaking of games, we're going to wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, the Learned Sixth Edition. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. First question. Today, uh, the Sixth Circuit Courthouse in Cincinnati is almost entirely occupied by district and appellate court staff. But that was not always the case. Can you name the agency that shared the building with the courts until 1992? Well, certainly the U.S. Postal Service shared uh, shared that courthouse like so many. Is that the agency you're looking for? <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> and uh, I read that uh, the Sixth Circuit has had several locations throughout its history and that its second building, completed in the 1880s, cost $5 million. Real money, even back then. <laughs> yeah. All right. Second question. You're off to a good start. Which Sixth Circuit judge was the first woman to sit on a state Supreme Court and the first woman to be appointed to an Article Three court? So I know that Judge Florence Allen was the first woman on the Sixth Circuit. Mm-hmm. Does that – that's great. Meet your uh, good. I didn't know about the state court side of things. Yes, yes. So she was appointed by FDR in 1934, where she served until 1966. And it took some time for Judge Allen to win over the respect of her male colleagues, but eventually she did. And one colleague said that she wrote a damn fine opinion. <laughs> Third question. Uh, the Sixth Circuit has had a bit of a rough patch at the Supreme Court in recent years. For example, between 2008 and 2011, the justices reversed 22 out of 23 cases out of the Sixth Circuit. Not good. 
But things are looking up for the sixth. So can you estimate its reversal rate last term? You give me a ballpark. That's good enough. Well, I believe we covered this on the blog, so I ought to know the answer. <laughs> I know they performed much better. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to say that it was, depending on how you count, it was something like four affirmances and three reversals. Yes, Is that's that in the ballpark? Yes, that's correct. Great. I knew we had that blog for something. <laughs> All right, fourth question. Although none of the current justices came from the Sixth Circuit, five Sixth Circuit judges have been elevated to the high court. Can you name one, two, three, four, or five? <laughs> so, Let's see how many you can do. So Potter Stewart is the easy one. Mm-hmm. His name is on the courthouse. William Howard Taft, the most famous to come from, from the Sixth Circuit and the perennial answer to Sixth Circuit trivia, um, <laughs> Supreme Court trivia too, really. And then I actually looked back at the early days when, judge, when I heard Judge Sutton talk about the Learned Six, which you mentioned before, it had this moniker early on for the number of law professors and great judges, uh, learned figures who came through. And lo and behold, I think like the first four judges of the Sixth Circuit all went on to the Supreme Court, which is as remarkable as that um, reversal rate that you mentioned a yeah. moment ago. <laughs> but it's something like Day, Lurton, and... Jackson, but not the the Robert Jackson, a uh, different Justice Jackson, as I recall. Yes, Howell Edmonds Jackson. Well, you got them all. Well done. And I wanted to point out that uh, Justice Lurton was appointed by by President Taft, and at the time he was the oldest justice to be appointed to the court at sixty five years old. So I think Taft maybe had uh, designs on you know a seat for himself. <laughs> <laughs> all right, one final question: Who is the Circuit Justice over the Sixth Circuit? So also – so unless it's changed, it's also someone who you wouldn't necessarily expect. I believe it's Justice Sotomayor. That's correct. Which, you know, begs the question uh, – raises the question, um, when is she going to come visit us again? <laughs> well, Ben, you did a great job with, uh, with Sixth Circuit Trivia. You know the Learned Sixth very well. And I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks for stopping by. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun and thanks for all your great work on the podcast. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.